Wednesday meeting. Part 1. The meeting starts at 7 p.m. I usually get there a few minutes late. It's either work or Seattle traffic or my slow decision making about dinner or all three. I head home on the link, usually about 40 minutes. Then I shower, eat up something frozen, and take a lift over to the meeting. I used to sweat being late. Several months in, I now expect them. It's a 90-minute meeting. I try to catch the last hour, but tonight I'm on time. Jackie leads the meeting. She's energetic because of the caffeine. She even empties an energy supplement into her black coffee. And the sugar rush of the Malamars. Jackie has been leading the meeting for at least as long as any of the weekly attendees has been here. And some, I've heard, have been here for over two decades. Jackie always wears a track suit and fresh sneakers. Her look and her energy always seems slightly out of place here. Let's start tonight with regrets. First, let's define regret. Something that's hard to let go of, like life, says Emmy. A few people chuckle. Emmy is in her late 50s or 60s, a raspy voice brimming with sarcasm. She reminds me of Dorothy from The Golden Girls the tall one who always wears a pained expression. I don't think about regrets anymore. When I was in my 20s, I did. Life still felt so undefined, it was easy to imagine the other paths. Now in my 40s, it feels more predictable, though not easier to manage. Someone told me regret is just self-indulgence mixed with bitterness. I guess so. It's also the nature of our minds to problem-solve and to imagine. In some ways, regret is just imagining, being able to solve a past problem. Having no regrets usually means you've stopped allowing your past problems to come to the surface of consciousness, or you've stopped imagining altogether. Hopefully, it's the former with me, but it seems my imagination is getting worse the older I get. I regret letting my dog off the leash. On that trail 12 years ago. It's Mickey speaking. He's probably 50 with a big gray beard and sad green eyes. Miss him every day. The coyotes. Jackie hones in on Mickey for a minute. You want to tell us more about the dog? She waits. I hear a few sighs from the other side of the circle. No, nope. Don't think so. Too sad. Mickey puts his face in his huge hands. Jackie recalls her old pal, Bumpy. She found him behind a dumpster when she worked at Applebee's in the 90s. She was having a cigarette at the end of the night, and the three-legged terrier mix hopped awkwardly out of a cardboard box, came over to her begging. She said that dog lived longer than the vet expected, but when he did die, she felt a piece of her heart slip away. Her struggles with booze were always slightly easier when she was cuddling with Bumpy. Mickey sniffles and coughs. Lighten the mood, shouts Felicia, tapping her sneakers. Please. Felicia might have Asperger's. Her outbursts often cause shock and bring an acute awareness of emotional intelligence and how it varies from human to human. Felicia works in data systems and wears the same clothes every Wednesday. Black sneakers, beige pants, 
green blouse. Jackie is used to Felicia. Okay, Felicia. How about you? Regrets? What comes to mind? Felicia frowns and looks at the ceiling as if the answers to her past pain are scribbled up there with the flickering fluorescent lights. Hmm. I have not done anything I should not have done, but I guess I maybe could have asked this one young man who was very intelligent and had impeccable manners. I could have asked him out on a date before that evil witch Maggie did. A couple of younger girls new to the meeting start to chuckle. Felicia rarely intends to be funny, which is why she often makes people laugh. Jackie follows up. So you regret not asking him out? Yes, that's what I said. We might have gotten married, though I found out he died of cancer ten years later, so maybe I should not regret that. Jackie follows up again. Oof. Well, it's okay to wonder about what would have happened, Felicia. Oh, I know, Felicia bellows. Okay, next. The two new girls laugh again. And how about you two, Jackie asks. Want to introduce yourselves? Silence for a long moment. The fifteen or so members of the meeting, myself included, are curious about why these two are at this particular grief support group in Tacoma, Washington, on this rainy Wednesday night in April. The taller girl with the heavy black eyeliner pipes up, suddenly serious. Dad died in a car accident two weeks ago. I'm Nikki. The shorter girl adds, I'm her sister, Victoria. Jackie looks at them tenderly. I'm deeply sorry for your loss, and it's still so fresh. I'm glad you're here. Both girls nod and look down. Without knowing it, I raise my hand. I'm actually about to speak. A rare occurrence. Jackie says, Okay, we'll take a ten-minute break. A few people head for the bathrooms. Jackie bounces over to the two new attendees. I look over at Mickey, who is gathering himself while eyeing the Malamars. There are only a few left. I get up and walk over to the plate. I take one, and a tiny orange, too. Then I pour a cup of coffee. Jackie always gets Seattle's best, a medium roast, which is probably my third favorite type of coffee. Mickey takes two of the Malamars and pours himself a cup. Sorry about your dog, I say. I've always wanted one, but my apartment doesn't allow them. Ah, thanks. That's a shame about your apartment, that they won't let you. It's hard loving anything that much, says Mickey. I think about that for a minute. I nod to Mickey, tap his shoulder, and then decide to leave the meeting. Part 2. Jacob I grew up in Vancouver, Washington, just north of Portland, on the Columbia River, the other Vancouver, less glamorous, sprawling, west coast suburban. It's hard to explain to folks who've only known concrete steel and industrial noises. Hard to explain the power of trees, climbing hills, and gliding along the water. That feeling, the surrounding power of nature, went from sublime to haunting when he drowned. I was eight. Jacob was eleven. Our sister Simone was fifteen. Jacob was a good swimmer. I'm still not exactly sure how it happened. We were out on Vancouver Lake in canoes. 
Mostly, I remember screaming. Simone turning over the canoe, not finding Jacob. Our parents shouting and rushing over hysterical. An hour later, Jacob being pulled out of the lake. Blue. My memory of the next month is a collage of fragments, a blur of emptiness. A hollow pit where my stomach used to be. My brother and best friend. Gone. The other bunk bed was taken out of our room, now my room. Jacob's toys were boxed and hidden. His posters taken down. Like the family decision was to remove all evidence from the room that he had existed. I know it was done to protect me, but it made everything worse. I couldn't deal with it, neither could our parents. I had no one to talk to. I think back now and realize we should have moved. At least a different home would have given us a chance to start again. My mom began a new routine of heading out on long walks every morning, coming back only for lunch. My dad, a reporter for the newspaper, began writing a novel that fall. It was all about Jacob. He's still working on it at age 72. Simone was with her boyfriend every day. Sometime she'd walk into my room, plop down on my bed with me and just start sobbing, listening to Bon Jovi while her heavy mascara was running all over the place. I couldn't feel anything. You know how you shut down a computer? I was in that phase when the computer is shutting down, but it hasn't turned off yet. Wide awake and seeing nothing. That was 34 years ago. I have my own son now. Charlie is three. I know it's cliche, but my life has a purpose since Charlie arrived. I'm over the dating scene and the bar scene. Even the music scene is getting old. I rarely miss it, except heading out to watch the Mariners play or being able to travel more. My friend Cleo and I are planning a trip up north to British Columbia soon. Cleo works at the agency. After a decade of matching adults with children, visiting homes to check out the environments, and endless paperwork, Cleo decided to adopt her own. So Cleo and I co-parent Charlie. Cleo works 8 to 3. I work 9 to 5 at the main office of our regional park service headquarters in Tacoma. We live a block from each other and take turns dropping Charlie off at the Montessori preschool. On Saturdays, we take him to playgrounds together. He scampers around, copying the older kids, trying to keep up, sometimes getting exasperated. Every once in a while, I think about the fact that Charlie won't have any older siblings, and then sometimes I spiral, thinking about Jacob. Simone is almost 50. She works in sports medicine, helping college athletes through knee injuries and concussions, and helps college baseball pitchers with their elbows and shoulders. She never had kids, never got married. I don't know if she's happy out there in Minneapolis. Riding home on that Wednesday night after the meeting, my eyes followed the lights of the city. I rarely spoke at the meetings, but found them welcoming and kept attending. I thought about it, but I just couldn't summon the courage to talk about Jacob after the break. Afraid the tidal wave would take over. I watched the way the golden ripples of light reflected off the Puget Sound. The driver turned the radio on the classic rock station, 
John Fogarty's worn out but warm voice came on. He called out, Have you ever seen the rain coming down on a sunny day? It's a simple song, beautiful and universal. When I first heard the song, it made sense to me, no matter how gorgeous the summer evening after Jacob's death that July, I was always ready for a downpour. Part 3. Dinner with Cleo The next Wednesday I was riding the link home from another day at the park service. Most of the day had been spent dealing with one local park and their community outcry over an abundance of geese poop. Sometimes my job was public relations, keeping the public aware of the natural world and our delusions of power over it. I was hoping to get some exercise now that the spring weather was here. Then my thoughts turned to dinner. What was in the freezer? Macaroni and cheese, a freezer-burned Tupperware of chicken parmigiana, vegetarian rice bowls. I needed to make another trip to the market. Before my stop, I saw the email from Jackie. Tonight's meeting was canceled. I felt a sense of disappointment mixed with a hint of relief. It's hard to muster enthusiasm to talk about grief, or, in my case, to consider talking about grief, while listening to the rest of the circle talk about, or around, loss. Jackie mentioned a family emergency. I wondered if it was her sister again. Jackie's younger sister was in and out of rehab. As I walked home, I called Cleo. She had Charlie that night. I told her I was free and asked if she wanted Thai or Indian food. Our schedule was consistent. She dropped Charlie with me in the mornings, Thursday and Friday, and I brought him to preschool, where he would sometimes cling to my leg before I hefted him in the door, saying goodbye. I picked him up and had him Thursday and Friday nights. We spent Saturdays all together, and we took turns on Sundays. One week, one of us had Charlie to ourselves, and then we'd switch the next Sunday. It was working well now that Charlie was swinging and climbing and sliding all over the place at the new playground. It was pretty tough when he was an infant. Babies are always in need. The times I just couldn't console Charlie when he was fed and rested and had a clean diaper and would still cry... I'd sometimes call Cleo, and she would sing to him over the phone. Watching him drift back into that state of liminal awareness, the tiny person's doze while I held him, and Cleo sang. Those were some of my favorite moments of the first two years. I felt like a failure at first, before I realized babies cry because they have no words. Cleo was really taking care of both of us sometimes. When they arrived at her place with a bag of aromatic Indian takeout, Charlie greeted me at the door. He was wearing a Richard Nixon mask and scared the hell out of me. Cleo cackled in the background. You know, that mask might traumatize him, I mentioned, handing the curry over. It might traumatize you too, she said, catching her breath. Charlie took off the mask and gave me a tight squeeze. Hey, Pop! There were few feelings I loved more than Charlie's exuberant hugs. To most people, I'm Isaac. But to Cleo, I became Pop when Charlie came home. At first, it was odd. I thought I'd be Dad or Daddy. Pop sounded like popcorn. But I love popcorn. Who doesn't? Now I'm used to it. Cleo assembled Charlie's dinner. Mac and cheese, blueberries, carrots, and a diced pickle. Charlie shouted, Pickly! 
when the plate arrived at the table. Cleo and I began devouring the pumpkin curry and the samosas. No meeting? She asked in between mouthfuls. Jackie had another emergency, I explained. I thought I might actually talk about Jacob tonight, I added. Cleo knew enough not to probe directly, but also knew nobody else was privy to my ongoing dilemma. Really? That might be great, she said. I mean, you've been thinking about it for a long time. Yeah, I said, sighing. I, I don't want it weighing me down anymore. I mean, I don't think it weighs everything down. I feel pretty happy with most of my life now. I reached out my hand to Cleo and Charlie. Cleo held it and replied, me too. Charlie took my hand and squished some gooey cheese into it and tilted his head at me. Anyway, these two teenage girls, they showed up last week and their dad was just killed in a car wreck. If they can show up to these meetings, I can summon those ancient memories of Jacob. Cleo nodded. Wow. Refilling my glass of ginger ale. I guess that's the purpose of the group, she added. Charlie was done eating. He started running around the apartment looking for stuff to bring me. For the next hour, I was building a train track, and we were watching Thomas the Train, the old one, narrated by George Carlin. I asked Cleo if we should teach Charlie George Carlin seven words you can never say on television. She thought we might want to wait until he's in middle school. I wished them both good night and sweet dreams, and then I began walking down the block back to my own empty apartment. I've been living there for a few years. I wondered about asking Cleo if we should buy a two-family home. I could live upstairs. I had some savings, but I probably couldn't put down the upfront costs on anything unless I asked my parents for help. They were retired and comfortable. I didn't love the idea of borrowing from them, but I did love the idea of Charlie being closer and living upstairs from Cleo. The crisp spring air convinced me to keep walking for a bit longer enjoying the dusk. As I strolled into Dash Point Park, I remembered Jacob in the bunk bed below me, kicking my bed frame in the middle of the night, telling me monsters were real. I sat on a bench overlooking the bay as the last light of the day left the sky. Part 4 Dreaming. After Jacob's death, I stopped sleeping with any consistency. I was always tired. To the point where I would fall asleep on my desk in fourth grade. My teacher was a kinder old man. I don't remember his name, but he was very thin and wore wolf sweaters that might have been knitted in the 1940s. He knew about Jacob and he spoke with us as a family before the school year started. He became increasingly concerned that I was becoming a narcoleptic. After a couple of phone calls were ignored, he met with my parents, neither of whom were sleeping well either. They shuffled like zombies into the classroom, meeting us after school. They listened quietly. My dad feigned interest in taking action, making an appointment with a family counselor. I knew my mom wouldn't go. You can't force people to accept help. I think mom actually drifted off on the way back home from the meeting, even though it was the middle of the afternoon. If I remember it correctly, dad stopped at a drive through and we got cheeseburgers and shakes. We ate in the car as mom snored away. 
While mom refused the suggestion of family counseling, dad thought it would be better if we saw movies together, went bowling, and played board games more often. He let me win all the time. It became really obvious. At one point, when we were bowling, I started throwing gutter balls on purpose, just so he could finally win. Nobody wanted to win. That's how we were all doing. I think Dad thought he could fill in the widening space created by Jacob's absence by approximating the behavior of an older brother that wanted his younger brother to feel better. Instead, it was just bizarre. When I remembered my dreams at all, it was because they startled me awake. I would sometimes dream of the dock where we boarded the canoes, me with Simone, but Jacob insisting on having his own canoe. I would only dream of us leaving the dock, setting off. It was like my view of that moment had a fixed vantage point stuck there on the dock, watching all of us getting smaller and smaller. I would wake in a panic just as we floated around the curve of the lake out of sight. Another dream that recurred over the next few years, Jacob singing Perfect World by Huey Lewis and the News. My dad was always turning the radio up when it came on. Jacob and I in the back seats and dad singing from up front, never quite hitting the high notes. In the dream, I was just watching Jacob thinking about what a good singer he was and how he remembered all the words, even though dad and I only remembered the chorus. Ain't no living in a perfect world. There ain't no perfect world anyway. Ain't no living in a perfect world, but we'll keep on dreaming of living in a perfect world. Sometimes a memory would enter my mind in a daydream, and I'd find myself with a smile on my face. Other times it would come early in the morning right before I woke up. I would enter consciousness, eyes still closed, and swear we were all there in the car, watching Jacob as he sang with the windows down and his curly hair flying all around his head. I'd wake up from the dream, and without a word, the tidal wave would overtake me. Mom would settle me down before nursing me out of bed to get ready for school. Part 5 In my mid-30s, I used to have sessions with Theo. Fridays at noon, first in Seattle and then in Tacoma, near the water, I would leave the office, bike over to Titlow Beach, and sit on a bench overlooking the water. Me and the black cormorants. An occasional heron, whose gangly beauty seemed to stop most humans from their busy internal monologues. On the bike ride over, I would think about what insights Theo had subtly offered the previous week. I'd consider myself, my life, my conscious existence, often for the first time that week, just as the work week was ending. I'd first seen Theo for a few years at the office in Seattle, a dark green couch almost comically worn in. Maybe it had been a grad school housing couch. Theo was only a few years older than me at the time, young for a therapist. Theo had gone straight to grad school after two years of traveling throughout North Africa and the Middle East. On that couch, with Theo sitting across, I, I excavated some of the pain of childhood. Theo helped me understand how I'd been shaping the memories of my school years and the adolescent chaos around Jacob. 
even though that part of my life contained many more layers. How I'd been given enough of the basic needs, but few of the emotional tools to cope with Jacob's absence. The vacuum created by Jacob's death was the invisible force that simultaneously held the family together and kept us isolated from each other. The silence of my house became cacophonous. I retreated into music and weed, Scott Weiland, Eddie Vedder, Bob Marley, and later Jim James and Tunde Arabimpe, voices full of seeking and yearning. I left most of those Theo sessions with a sense of weightlessness. As I closed the door behind and re-entered the world, it seemed as if extra oxygen filled the crisp air. Other times, an immeasurable chasm opened within myself, as if no matter how far I reached back into the past, it would continue, the emptiness. As if consciousness went back to the Big Bang itself, as if we all shared one consciousness, some underlying awareness of the infinitesimal truth of each human's short lifespan. Senior year in physics class, I heard an astronaut discuss seeing the Earth and feeling that overwhelming awareness of the vastness of existence, that sensation of precarious life, when he saw the Earth shrinking into the darkness. I haven't seen a therapist since Theo moved. I know it would have helped, but Theo's absence kept me stuck. A connection fizzled. A bottle of trust poured onto the ground. Instead, I went to Mariners games at Safeco Field every Friday night, often by myself, sometimes on dates, occasionally with Henry, my co-worker and friend. Henry had no interest in baseball, but enjoyed the sausages and the general experience of being among the energized masses. I finally started dating. I measured my compatibility with each woman by her interest in three things. A. The conversation. B. The food. And C. The game itself. If my date was a skilled talker and listener, we could have a conversation about non-baseball topics for hours. If she enjoyed the food and ate without hesitation or any fear of judgment, that was a big plus. If she had some genuine interest in the game, that was a bonus. Family dinners after Jacob's death were somber affairs. Simone would arrive late. My parents would often read the paper or a magazine, even while they ate. Out of those two dozen or so dates, two of them became long-term girlfriends. Rose had grown up playing baseball, so her interest was absolutely genuine. The conversation was lively, buoyed by Rose's sense of silliness. Rose loved ballpark nachos and beer. It was the beer that had eventually been a factor in the demise of our relationship. Her reliance on liquid became more obvious during the non-baseball dates. She wanted to get drunk, not accompany whatever else we were doing with the drink. It became boring and monotonous. Helena, a Turkish PhD student in physics, was my last relationship. Helena wasn't interested in baseball until I showed her some YouTube videos about the physics of pitching. Then she wanted to watch from directly behind home plate. 
I could only afford those seats once. After that, she preferred to watch the games on television. Helena had a brilliant mind, and her enthusiasm was contagious. She was always reading. Our relationship ended when Helena was offered a tenure-track position on the East Coast. I flew to New York and met her for a weekend a few months after she'd taken the position. There was simply too much distance, even if Earth itself was a pale blue dot on the horizon as seen from space. What did I learn about myself through these experiences? Being among a crowd of people, eating food and drinking beer, was fun, but temporary. That sometimes having fun made me more lonely later on because I was seeking some deeper level of trust that seemed impossible to find. I learned that sex was pleasurable. I know that sounds obvious, but bear with me. I'd been painfully shy as a teenager and a college student. I also learned that initiating sex was complicated, especially with Helena, the PhD student. That communicating anything about one's own psychic needs was work. That most people preferred to get out of their minds before they could engage with their bodies. It was Wednesday again. I got to the meeting early. Jackie brought homemade oatmeal, walnut, and chocolate chunk cookies. She apologized for the previous cancellation. Earlier in the week, I made a commitment to myself that I would speak about Jacob. How I spent most of my life framing my sense of self around the absence of Jacob and how I was finally ready to let Jacob go. Maybe it would help those two teenagers whose father had been killed in the car wreck. I told Jackie before the meeting that I was ready to speak. Jackie opened the meeting with some announcements about the upcoming month. The usual crew wandered in and poured cups of coffee, ripping sugar packets, the wooden stirrers for the half and half. Then the two girls showed up, looking exhausted. When Jackie mentioned that I would share first, I went over and picked up the plate of cookies, going around the circle, offering a cookie one by one. People nodded with appreciation as I made my way around the circle. Finally, I took one of my own, put the plate back on the table, and found my seat. Everyone was watching me, munching happily. I felt that sense of overwhelming expectation and took a deep breath. And said goodbye to my vision of Jacob, the one where he's singing in the car about a perfect world and how none of us can live in it. I've been coming here for a while, and I appreciate all of you opening up about the people and the animals you've lost. I've been holding on to the pain of my brother's death. Took another deep breath. And felt the butterflies in my stomach lift. For over 30 years, his name was Jacob. He was 11. I looked out at this circle of faces. Jackie beamed compassion. Mickey nodded. The two girls were with me. The other folks were respectful and quiet. Even Felicia, who couldn't handle heavy emotions, sighed but kept her eyes on me, a hint of curiosity glinting. I looked down at the floor so that I could continue. When he drowned, our whole family drowned for a while too, or maybe we began treading water. Jacob was about to start sixth grade that summer, 
He loved the movie Back to the Future. We shared a bedroom. After his death, it was like life had paused. Like I could tell my body to move if I had to, but it took a lot of effort to bother eating a bowl of cereal. My mom started taking walks, really long ones. For half of the day, my dad just read books and wrote in his study. He tried to play games and have fun with me. My older sister was always out with her boyfriend. None of us could just be, just live and breathe and just be. I'm not sure what to say about grief. It's why we're all here to try and talk about this thing nobody wants to talk about. Death. Loss. Unbearable emptiness. But I guess that's the cost of loving someone or of giving a shit. Of believing in possibility. I wasted too many years swimming in that emptiness looking at old pictures of Jacob. Leaving a movie theater and wondering what Jacob would have thought. Even when I felt joy, I felt the absence of that shared joy we'd known as little kids. I was always half in the past, half in the present, never in the future. That's what depression felt like to me, never in the moment. Anyway, I'm closer to okay now. I'm helping raise a little boy named Charlie. My job is steady enough. I don't need to tread water anymore. I can float, or I can swim, or I can head back to the beach and lie in the sand. I sighed and wiped the tears. I looked up again. Compassion. A circle of people listening with their whole bodies, some with tissues in their hand, sniffling, wiping their tears away. Two girls were holding hands, both with their eyes on me. The older one had the faint trace of a smile. Thank you all for being with me. Thank you for hearing this. I love you, Jacob. I took a sip of coffee and felt myself begin to float around the room. Thanks for listening to this short story, The Wednesday Meeting. Thanks for listening to this podcast in general. And if you enjoyed it, please share it with anyone else who might enjoy it. Till next time.